everyone. It's Christine. Welcome back to the Rose Woman Podcast. We're beginning season three. And first, I want to thank the people who are my listeners for their patience while I took a little break over the summer from the podcast to kind of recalibrate. I had the best summer of my life. I was able to teach eco-spirituality, trauma healing, bhakti yoga, uh, full awakening kind of programs with my friends Adam Bauer, Sukadas, Katya Wallish, John Decott, Renata Langner in places all over Germany, in Portugal, and then also on the East Coast of the United States. And I feel in some way like the 30 years of study that I've put into so many modalities have finally been coming together. Uh, the programs were really well received, so we'll be back again in all of those places as well as in other countries next summer. So the other thing I've been working on is Sensing Woman, and I've mentioned it a couple of times. I mentioned it on my pre-break pod, but it's come together so amazingly. It's a four-night, five-day event in Chelsea in New York at the end of September, and it's also going to be simulcast so that if you want to join in by online, you can totally do that. It's really a program about the what does it mean to be in a female body now and where are we moving towards as we deprogram ourselves from bad cultural ideas and particularly at a time when authoritarianism particularly in the United States would like to reinstate uh, some kind of bossiness over a woman's body and we are doing this event with 32 contemporary artists female artists who have something to say about the female embodiment experience as well as midday councils uh, with people like body positivity expert Emmy, who you've heard on the show before. She's selected a mul- multiple wonderful people for her panel. Katie Fogarty of A Certain Age Pod has put together a panel on media and stories we're telling. Allie Ward, the top science podcaster in America, has put together a panel of ologists. You know her show, Ologies, or you might know her from CBS Innovation Nation. Uh, we've got so much more. This, not that, on algorithmic bias with Jackie Rotman, who you've also heard on the show uh, from the Center for Intimacy Justice. And then the evening programs. Opening night is V, Eve Ensler, the grand dame of activism around body violence and reclaiming your intimate parts. Uh, very excited to have her. What a, What an honor that she agreed to join us. We have Lizzie Jeff, rap priestess, who's been on the show doing a program on Friday night that's very dropped in and somatic. We have a sound and medicine thing. We have a story slam. I would really love for you to be there. This benefits the Center for Reproductive Rights and the Center for Intimacy Justice. But more importantly, it's creating this hot portal of community connection uh, that I feel is so vital to keep us energized about moving forward in the world, just moving forward with confidence that everyone at some point will have equal autonomy and better access to all the things that make us healthy and well, which is a nice segue into today's show, which is with Carrie Kelly, the author of American Detox. So what's a toxin anyway? Is it poison in the water? Is it cancer-causing pesticides in the food? Or can it also be poisonous ideas? One of the core questions Carrie's asking in her book is, does the culture you live in make you unwell? What if wellness is a symptom of a broken culture? And we speak in the show about the limits of personal responsibility, what the you can do and what the we should do. 
Uh, we talk about resourcing as a collective versus self-care. We talk about our addictions to comfort, our willingness to listen to discomfort, our willingness to be resensitized, our willingness to learn about what's going on with other people. And I kind of got a moment of, uh-oh, I ju- it, something just clicked for me. I could never really understand why people would criticize the goopification of America or whatever. I never quite got it. But now I get it. It's that, you know, if you have a culture where everyone basically has access to clean water and healthcare and healthy food, and the work paradigm is in balance with being in pleasure and in freedom in your body, and if community life is healthy and whole and people have digestion capacity, your default state is basically well. The only reason you need a wellness industry is when the default state is unwell and we're trying to fix a problem. And I just love the fact that she's articulated the detox beyond you know, how we clean out our bodies uh, individually into a much more collective idea of how do we detox poisonous concepts and restore a well culture. So I reserve the right to hold both end. You know, I, I still will advocate and send you recipes for Epsom salt baths with fresh rose petals and chamomile from the garden. I will still make my bee pollen and blue algae smoothies because I love that stuff and it feels good. And I still do live in the broken thing where I have to take more responsibility for my own well-being. But at the same time, my activism feels reignited after speaking with Carrie, that it is about creating more just systems for everyone. I'm reminded of um, the word religion and that ligare in the middle is the same word as ligament to bind. And that religion means to rebind or reconnect. And, you know, when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're reconnecting yourself to spirit or you're reconnecting yourself to other. But unfortunately, the way that it kind of got rolled out is that you're reconnecting or you're, you're binding yourself to sort of a subset, an institution, uh, a set of ideas versus to other people in the broader field or to the earth. And I feel like we, we definitely need a new understanding of how we're bound and connected to each other. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Carrie Kelly, the author of American Detox. I think the last time I saw you was at Kripali? Lake Tahoe, maybe? Was it Lake Tahoe? Maybe it was a yoga festival. Wanderlust? Yes. Amazing. Wanderlust. You were leading a canoeing thing or a stand-up paddling thing. Oh, my thing. God. That was so forever ago. I know, like a dozen That's years. Like, uh, yeah, like truly, actually, that might be what, you, what it is. But I've been following you. I have asynchronous in- intimacy. I love it. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take asynchronous <laughs> intimacy. Wow, there's that Carrie. She's always doing something to make the world a better place. Oh, I appreciate you. All right. So welcome to the Rose Woman podcast. Thank the you. rose part is a little bit of a gentler form of woke. It's not just about the shape. It's like I'd love to see people like rise up into their full power and then take that out and turn it into something great in the world for justice. And that seems to be right in line with this new book, when I saw the title, I thought initially it was going to be about just the wellness industry and how it, you know, basically harms our self-worth actually in some weird perverse way. But then when I read the book, it was more it, it was a much broader idea of detox, like almost like you're 
detoxing all of the poison that's in the culture that we're steeped in. So I'm so happy to have you on and talk about it. I'm so grateful, Christine. Thank you. So what does it mean to be well? You say you said something early in the book, like like it's hard to be well in a fucked up world. But what does it mean to be well in a world in the world we have? I feel like that's the question I'm asking in this entire, you know, journey in this entire book is like, what does it mean to be well, you know, given everything we're up against, given the culture that we're steeped in, given the history that we come from? And, you know, I, I feel like I'm still answering that question. And and one of the things I've learned by listening and by being in this conversation and by doing all of the research around American detox is that what it means to be well is different for different people. So that's one of the really, I think, toxic things that the wellness uh, industry sells us is that to be well is a one-size-fits-all type of, you know, protocol or prescription. I mean, it's a beautiful idea that fundamentally you're well to begin with until you get layered into all of these sort of perverting ideas from a culture. That's true. And, you know, what I'll add to that is um, because I love that idea of like we're kind of born into this world whole and pure. And, you know, one of the things I, I reckoned with while writing this book is that that's I believe that to be true. And we are born into a context that is already happening, right? The minute we, it really, even when we're in the womb, right? We're born into the the womb, you know, what's happening in the womb and the mother's body and the culture and the conditions that the mother is in. And I'm just even thinking about epigenetics, right? Like we're born oof, into oof. like a historical, right? Um, and generational trauma. You know, you just, you just actually hit this thing. Like it's not a blank slate. You're not. And that actually believing a blank slate, pure baby blank slate, is buying into the idea that you're a self-created individual from the get, which you're not. Completely, right? So, and which I, I just want to say is like a beautiful aspiration. So like, yes to that, right? But but once I started to like dig back into the like, you know, one of the big questions I ask in this book is like, where do we come from? You know, and a lot of where we come from happened before I came into being, right? So it's like, I inherited that the the moment i you know came into the world and and i had to grapple with that right and i was located inside of that system whether i liked it or not right which in my body right being white and cis and you know straight and able bodied was to be much more proximal to the conditions that are required to be so called well right and i'm i'm talking about sort of just like basic human access needs so yes, right, to like, and then culture came at me and shaped me and trained me in a particular kind of way, right? My mind became, I would say, distorted, <laughs> you know, and wired by dominant culture. But both both things I think now are true. Yeah, when you said just to just bring some more clarity to that default conditions for wellness, you mean like clean water and healthy food and that kind of stuff. Totally, right? Like, so I think often when we think of wellness as it's communicated to us through kind of like the dominant industry, we think of juice fasts and supplements, you know, and yoga poses. But when I think of wellness and well-being or what people need to be well, I think of a living wage. I think of housing, you know, I think of access to universal health care. I think of, to your point, clean water, right, and healthy, organic food. So I, you know, when I think about, you know, and I think often the privilege of wellness based on its current construct enables a lot of us 
to bypass that consideration because we don't have to worry about that, right? Many of us who are engaged sort of in the the industry of wellness, the luxury of wellness, right, already have our basic needs met, right? And so we so we have the privilege of not having to struggle through a lot of those things. Having said that, I think times are changing now, obviously. So I think a lot more people are impacted by, you know, structural deficiency and and abject, you know, inequality. But but I think that like a big goal and intention of this book is for people to start to stretch their practice to include more than the individual solutions, right, that were sold to many of the complex problems we're navigating, right? I want people to think of wellness as politics, as like fighting for the conditions where people have what they need, right, to thrive on their terms. Yes. And there's a piece that says, don't mistake your individual struggle for a structural problem. Or don't, don't, you know what I'm saying? Like you think there's something wrong with you that you have to fix and you're going at it and you're going at it. But when the solution is a collective solution, like I would say a lot of the high level wellness stuff for people who do have the basic needs met is actually structured around mental health. You know, like the anxiety and stress of living in a modern culture is what drives people into sort of the wellness world, positive affirmations, daily meditation, let's go. But but that's not your problem individually. That's because the society is broken. Yes. I love that reframe. Thank you for that. And I think, you know, systems and, and structures of power not only sell us, right, the false promise of these sort of deeply individualized, simple solutions to complex problems, but then they blame us for when we struggle and for when we're not well. And I think that's really intentional, right? Because when when we put the onus, right, on individual choices and personal responsibility, which is a big part of our all-American DNA, right, this idea of, of personal responsibility, then systems aren't responsible for our suffering and our struggle, right? It's almost like the system says, don't look over here, right? Look over there. Something must be wrong with you if you're sick, right? Or if you're struggling, or if you're if you can't get a job, right? And I heard this amazing thing a couple months ago about burnout. Someone was saying that burnout is not a thing, right? Because burnout implies that the onus is on the individual, that the individual must not be working hard enough or they're not resilient enough to hustle or, you know, all those, that whole like, you know, really vicious narrative that blames us, right, for being exhausted by this like toxic capitalist culture. But burnout is really the system of capitalism that is demanding of us superhuman things like 80 hour weeks and nonstop work and no boundaries. And so I love that reframe of like, like, and now I, I try not to talk about burnout in that way anymore, even though I feel the exhaustion, right? I feel the struggle. It's not because of me. It's not something that's wrong with me. It's something that's wrong with the system of capitalism that's got me hustling beyond my human capability. Yeah, I'm not burnt out. I'm overused. Exactly. You're exploited, my friend. You're expo <laughs> all exploited is what's happening. And that's the word we should be using, right? Not burnout, but exploitation. You, you talk about it in, in the book as moving from self-care to community care. 
I think this is a nice segue into, you know, the limitations of the idea of self-care. Like I do have to take accountability for the inch between my hand and my mouth. I do. But, you know, can you talk a little bit more about this community care piece? Yeah. Well, and what I want to say about self-care based on what I know of its origins is is the idea of self-care came from black queer feminists in the 70s. Um, Audre Lorde has a very famous quote, right, about self-care being a, a radical political act, right, of self-preservation. Um, but the intention was not to remove ourselves from the collective and to escape into some self. It was like, this is how we survive, right? We survive by taking care of ourselves in a world that was not designed for us. And and so I say that because the or, the origin of the idea and the practice of self-care was deeply collective. So it's like it's an immune response. The self-care movement is an immune response to a culture that won't care for you. That's what she's saying. Exactly. And I th- I believe what I understand of that story is is that she wrote those words when she was when she was suffering from cancer. So she was she was deeply compromised. She was also like fighting, right, um, for, uh, you know, collective liberation, right, w- you know, with a group of people. And self-care was a practice that enabled them to fight, that allowed them to be resilient in the face of the fight. You know, this idea that we can just, you know, drive a hybrid and eat organic and meditate 20 minutes a day and, you know, wear essential oils and we've done our civic duty, right? We've done our, our citizen, you know, we've made our citizen contribution is a really harmful, you know, concept um, in a world that's suffering from collective struggle. Yeah, you haven't made it worse necessarily by managing yourself, but you certainly haven't made it better. There's a piece on sustainability that I read about how industry, consumer products, goods in particular, they wanted to shift the onus off of themselves for making sustainable products. And so they backed their recycling movement that put the whole onus of greening and and no waste on the individual or the individual household. And, and, and sort of same thing with energy consumption, that instead of dealing it with it cent- in a centralized way where it would roll out to everyone, they said, you do it, you out there, you bear the cost. I heard that too, and that um, that the idea of the carbon footprint, calculate yes, your carbon yes. footprint, um, reduce your carbon footprint, was an idea created by big oil, yeah, and big energy. So that right, so that it's like don't ah. look, don't look over here, <laughs> look oh. over there, yeah. So um, I feel like I wrote down some some pairs from the book, um, from isolation to togetherness, from escapism to embodiment, like getting in your body, uh, from perfectionism to loving what is, from, I can't remember, I can't even read some of my notes, but they're all of these pairs that are all pointers of going from the me to the we. And you said, I think in one of the chapters, it says, it's ironic that there's no path to the we except through the me. And so, uh, so what's this process of becoming risen, of becoming awake to the collective, First, I had to be able to feel myself before I could feel someone else. Otherwise, it was totally up here intellectually um, and stuck up there. So what has the migration been for you from the me to the we? And how do people make that journey? You know, I feel like so one of the things I'll add to what you just named about, you know, isolation, disembodiment, 
is that those are not just consequences of a toxic system. They're functions. Because if we are to be isolated from one another, right, and disconnected, and I'm even thinking about the strategy of divide and conquer, um, if we are to be dissociated, disembodied, and distracted, those all function to uphold the system, to keep the status quo as it is, right? And so I think for me in my own process, waking up to that, you know, becoming aware of of systems, it was like taking care of myself is like a radical act of resistance. That is essential to how we become a we, right? Where everyone is getting what they need, where everyone is reclaiming their whole selves, right? And where everyone is working, not just against a system that holds us back from our full potential, but towards, right, a future that we all deserve. Yeah. So this step one is taking care of yourself and then you're waking up to this possibility. Re- like I, I don't think taking care of yourself, I, I want to say resourcing yourself to do the work. There's something around resourcing versus self-care. And part of me feels like, you know, I feel like the way that I tell the story in the book is that you have to be willing to see, right? So some of it is like letting yourself be impacted being willing to see the world. And I think to your point, having the resources, right, and the capacity to hold the discomfort and the dissonance that arises, right? I think we all know this, that like often when we wake up or when we're in a process of transformation, right, which is sort of like seeing things in a different way, but also experiencing things very differently, what arises, right, in its wake is discomfort, is unf- you know, the uncertainty, right, of what's next, unfamiliarity. Um, for me, a lot of what came up was dissonance. I was like, something doesn't feel right, but I don't know what it is. And society tells us to, to avoid discomfort, uh, to, to bypass it, right? Uh, to distract ourselves. Even a lot of that toxic positivity, I think, is a way that we're selling people um, the idea that you can, that you should only feel good, right? That like feeling good (laughs) is the end goal and discomfort is bad or toxic or something is wrong. So, So I feel like that resourcing piece that you're naming feels essential because to me, we resource and we build a capacity to allow for the discomfort that is teacher, right, to arise, right? The discomfort that to me is a signal that something is changing, that you're changing. And so now I've come to, I've come to learn to listen to discomfort as it arises. I'm like, ooh, something's happening. What is that? I get curious about it, right? I get compassionate. And to your point, I feel my feet on the ground. I make sure I have what I need. Sometimes I have to call people in. To me, wellness is about building a capacity to hold change, to hold conflict, to hold discomfort. Yeah, to feel. To feel. I've been spending over the last five years, I've been doing collective trauma healing work, like training in that. And it's pretty clear that when you're young, if you are overwhelmed in a situation that you develop all of these adaptive strategies to shut down, suppress, or put those feelings away, and that to carefully unpack that requires being held in community, being looked at, being presenced. But instead of that, most people get a bottle of alcohol or something, and they don't develop the skills to digest experience as it arises. And and if I can't feel you, then I can objectify you. And if I can objectify you, I can shoot you up in a church. 
and and that this core willingness to be resensitized, which is so uncomfortable, like, how would you do that alone? It's one of the, I mean, I think you're right. I think understanding how trauma works is really helpful, right? In understanding how we get free, right? Of this indoctrination, but also how we walk through this really like the messy pathway, right? This, this, this uh, complex process, right? Of, of what you're naming, right? Which is like, it's not just confronting the trauma, it's discharging it, right? And, and, and the, and all of the, you know, things that, that arise from that process. And, you know, one of the things that I think we're learning, especially through like the vagus nerve is that there's self-regulation that's helpful. Like, how can I take care of myself? Right. So that I can, I can be invested in my own, uh, trauma, you know, healing. But there's also co-regulation to your point that like actually we heal in community and, and, you know, I think dominant culture, you know, especially in the field of psychology leans really hard on like one-on-one therapy and individual healing. Um, and I feel like so much from, you know, what's emerging from, from trauma work is that co-regulation is essential. Like collective healing is actually a part of healing. Relational healing is like core, right? To how we move through, right, some of this work. Yeah, and I mean, if I take my secret shame into a one-on-one therapy session and work through it and feel it, that's fine, but I'm still gonna think what I did is shameful at some level. But if I sit in a room with a dozen other people and say, how many of you have experienced this and three of them raise their hands, it's a totally different situation. Well, and, and it points back to what we were talking about before, like, wait a minute, we're all experiencing shame. What else might be at work besides it's my fault, right? When we start to see ourselves in shared struggle, we're like, wait a minute, maybe it's not us. Maybe it's the system that's messed up. And maybe that's where the healing needs to happen too. I want to jump to the word detox for a minute. So when I was growing up, you're younger than me, but when I was growing up, I did not hear that word ever. So how did we even enter into this world of detox? Where did that come well, from? I, I embraced that word because, you know, while I was writing this book, I was studying how culture works because I was curious about like how I how I had come to, bu- to buy in to these really toxic and limiting beliefs, right? Things like perfectionism um, or becoming self-made and self-sufficient, like I couldn't ask anybody for help. Um, Even whiteness, like all of these really like ways in which my mind and my my perspective, right, my, of the world had been shaped by dominant culture. And the way that I understand culture is that it's the air that we breathe, that's when I got curious about this idea of detox because I was like, oh, wait a minute. If culture is always happening at, a, at us and on us and in us, right? Like if we're breathing the air in, our insides, right, are being, are being shaped, right, by what we're experiencing on the outside, then what does it mean to actually excavate those toxins from the body, right? Um, and also excavate those toxins from the systems and the structures that we're a part of, right? So there's also like an external and a collective detox that I talk a lot about in this book. But one of the, the theories of change that I, I, I try to put forth, you know, through this inquiry is that what's happening on the outside is happening on the inside. 
and what's happening on the inside is happening on the outside, right? And air is like a great conduit of that, right? Because you breathe it in, you breathe it out, you breathe it in, you breathe it out. Um, and that's how I understand dominant culture, you know, like, I feel like wellness often sells us this idea that we can transcend um, into some higher consciousness and graduate. And I don't know that I believe that to be true. But the detox part, I feel like, demands that we excavate, right? That we heal, that we bring up to the surface what has been dormant and hidden, maybe neglected, right? Maybe shamed and excluded and fully integrate and digest it, right? Composted into so anyway, so I love that idea because that that is how I understand trauma heals, right? Is is by like pulling up, right? That exposing, right? Um, those patterns and coping mechanisms that develop, and then digesting and integrating them into something different. And so the detox, I feel like, is an invitation to compost, you know, to like pull up from the drebs, the truth that has been hidden, right? The wounds that have been unacknowledged, right? And reconciled. And then to do the work of like exorbit, you know, reintegrating them in uh, in a different form, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, a cultural detox that you're talking about might even have some of the same symptoms as a physical detox. Like, you know, the first few days, like you get headaches and you break out in hives and you vomit and you have diarrhea and all the stuff that happens when you change what your nourishment is. Um, and then you feel amazing and high. And then you go back to doing the same things that you did before the detox and just using those parallels, like it might make you sick. It's going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to feel great when you go through a layer and you're going to want to revert because it's a lifetime of habit. And what you need in that environment is other people who will support you in making the change. So you've been about that a lot. You've created movements and communities because I know with this worldview, you are not going about culturally detoxing as an individual. Thank you for that analogy, by the way. I love that. And I feel like what you're making me realize as you describe that is I feel like, you know, like a doula, <laughs> like a detox doula, because some of what I've found to be really helpful in my organizing is doing what you just did, is saying, this is happening, whether we like it or not. Here's why. <laughs> Here's where it comes from. Here's how it might feel in your body. Here's what we can expect, right? As the de as as it as it runs its course, right? As systems continue to collapse, right? Um, as people in power resist, right? The liberation that's rising up, right? The new way of be being that's taking hold. I feel like people need to hear that, right? Because I think a lot of us are in terror about what's happening in the world. And because society has been organized and designed in such a way that we all feel isolated, right? And separate, right? And alone and helpless, we're reluctant to reach out to one another, to be like, hey, are you are you feeling this? Dis like, does this feel like shit to you? Or is the world losing its mind? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like all the things I think all of us think, but are afraid to say out loud. And so I just wanted to say that like so much of how I organize is I try to say those things out loud. Like, here's what I know to be happening, right? Or here's what I'm, I'm hearing from the front line, or here's what I'm learning. And like, here's what we can expect, right? And here's what's needed, right? And, and just being in a conversation with people about where we are and how we got here and what we can expect is like, to me, a really big first step 
to like actually acknowledging that you're a part of something bigger than yourself and remembering that you're not alone, right? And to me, if we can just get over that hurdle, right, many things can emerge from that place, right? Yeah, the biggest damage in this last cycle was the distrust of the people that you thought you knew. And and the thing about sitting with you in a room and talking to you and having you doula me into my new awareness, <laughs> it's very different than being online and not knowing that it's a, you know, ten, a million Russian bots that are talking to you. Like, what do my neighbors actually think and feel? I need to know that by being in direct contact with them. I think that's true. And I look, I think there's a lot of beautiful things I've seen emerge from virtual spaces, especially right in the pandemic. But to your point, what a lot of those spaces are missing is culture. They're missing a container that is rooted in trust and relationship. So listen, if you want to detox from in a real way, I know you all were listening to this show because you thought you were going to get the top tips on green juices and colonic hydrotherapy. <laughs> but sorry, sorry, we want you to do the real <laughs> detox, which is to detox yourself from a poisonous culture, which produces true wellness for you and everybody around you. There's a, what's that spiritual? If one of us is chained, none of us are free. And if you can really feel into that, like I, I it, it will change your life. Like you can't have your retirement savings and hold yourself up in a house because the market affects everybody, you know? And so you've got it. We've got to start thinking in a different way. Yeah. And I was just going to add like, and this idea that you can be well while so many people are suffering is just not true. And so if you value wellness, which I'm assuming a lot of people do because it's a $4.4 trillion industry globally, right? You got a lot of people throwing down financially and investing in this idea, right, of, of wellness and of being well, then we have to like rise to the occasion because none of us are well unless everyone is well. I think we did a TEDx on that in 2013 called Seven and a Half Billion Well. Could you even imagine that? And um you know, it was really hard to imagine because you're, we're so steeped in, well, the poor will always be with us. I think that's even in our scriptures, if you're in a Christian Judaic tradition, that's got to go. Yeah, that's really rooted. I mean, how limiting, right? A belief and how, and that's, and it's a, it's a mythology rooted in separation and supremacy, you know, that we're separate from one another, that we're separate from the earth, that we're separate from all of life, right? And that some of us are supreme, right? Which will always mean that others are inferior. And I just refuse that ideology. I mean, I realize that the reality that we live in is, is built upon that, right? Upon that idea of, of separation, supremacy, and scarcity. I just don't know that we're going to survive that, actually. Yeah, I agree with you. I have one more question, and it's around the integration of what you talked about in the beginning about being overused slash burned out slash exploited. And then this feeling like we should be doing something to detox these systems, but being just too exhausted. Like, don't ask anything more of me. I just need some downtime to put on my show and go away. Can we just talk about a softening around finding the space to make the changes and, and, and calling in culture versus calling out culture? Like there's got to be something in there that allows people to do it in a healthy way. Mm. I mean, what, what comes up for me when you say that is discernment, 
Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you talked about, you know, like all of us being burned out and overworked, but also being called to do more, what came up for me is paradox is is sort of like the the spiritual paradox of like both and <laughs> right like yeah like is kind of my answer to what you're saying like yes that's happening and i don't know if it requires a softening as much as it requires a capacity to like hold that both are happening at the same time that we're becoming increasingly more exhausted more i would say um anxious and traumatized by what's happening in the world. And there's a greater and increasing need for us to show up on behalf of the whole of who we are and to show up on behalf of future generations. It's a little bit like the the urgency paradox. Like uh, Bio Akomalafe says, these times are urgent, we must slow down. And, and I've been trying to be in this practice of like, there are times to slow down, right? Especially if we're burned out and not well. And there are times to speed up. And so like, to me, it's about discernment. It's not about like one or the other. It's about like what is needed in this particular moment. And then the second part to that that I want to add is what makes that possible is the collective. Because there are going to be times, Christine, when you are exhausted or you are burned out or you are sick or you have COVID, right? But I can step it up. And so, right, so so some of that, like, I have to, like, protect myself and preserve comes from sort of this this myth of separation, this, this you know, um, this experience of isolation, this, like, you know, and it also comes from a, like, not all of us have been showing up for each other, right? Some of us have, and some of us have been taking care of their own, right? So, so part of me is, like, you know, it, it points back to the collective, like, inside of a a healthy collective, right? A relational collective. There's lots of room for people to to get what they need at different times, right? And some people will need to slow down and take care of themselves and rest. And other people can actually step up to the plate and throw down, right? Or speed up or accelerate. And so that's where that's where I feel a lot of hope, quite frankly, is that like in community, we have so much more capacity, but all by ourselves, it's kind of not possible. And we don't have to do this all by ourselves, right? That's the thing I want people to remember. I'm so inspired by that. I, you know, it's like, it's like I knew that intellectually, but I have to be reminded. And it's hard to be reminded when you don't have people around you that, have, that can be like, I, Christine, why don't you rest today? I got this. Mm. You, like everybody deserves to have community around them that can do that. And if we don't, you know, we're all going to burn out real fast, you know? And so to me, it's like, what does it look like for us to A, hold the like, yes, and, <laughs> and right, to to remember that we're in community, we're not alone, and to build communities that can have each other, right? And that have the discernment, right, to um, hold each other when we need different things. Thank you for all of that. In your foreword, there's a person, Reverend Kyoto wrote the foreword. How did you meet that person? So it's Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. And oh my gosh, we go back many, many years. She was organizing the mindfulness community around social change. And I was organizing the yoga community. So like we had this like, you know, shared commitment to politicizing, you know, the spiritual community and getting them engaged 
in our in collective change in systems change, um, and we just became fast friends. We both realized that we both uh, had firemen fathers. <laughs> um, you know, we were both from New York, and we both just clicked in. And she's one of my dearest friends. She's a teacher. Um, she's you know someone I dance and party with. And it was an incredible honor to have her write the forward because she's also a black woman living in America. And it felt really important for us to hold, right? This goes back to discernment, the nuance that even though we're all committed to an American detox, we're all having a very different lived experience, right? Of what it is to be alive in this country right now, which means we need different things and that our role and responsibility is really different. And that's actually what's enabled our relationship to thrive is that we both we both understand that with one another, right? Um, that we both understand how we've been racialized, and and we both tend to one another inside of that um, at all times, right? And we transcend it, you know, at the same time. That's part of the both and, right? Like like we understand our relative relationship, but we also understand our spiritual relationship, which goes beyond all these constructs that we have inherited. And so anyway, it was an, an incredible, incredible honor. She threw down some like fierce words in that forward. I often tell people like, I'm just like, read, just read the forward, you know, like, don't worry about the book, just read the forward, because the forward is fire. It is. And you know what the words that come to mind as you speak about her and about this relationship is like, less certainty, more humility, like there's a lot of humility and willingness to be wrong. That has to happen in this relationship. And work. Listen, we've had some conversations where like, she's been like, look, like, don't do that. You know, <laughs> like, when I've been stuck in my whiteness, right, when I have not been when I can't see what I'm doing in the ways on which I'm sort of like acting out white supremacy, which happens to me all the time in this white body. You know, like we've had to have some really hard conversations, right? Uncomfortable conversations, fierce and true conversations. And you know, relationships across lines of difference require that, quite frankly. There's no Pollyanna, right, in um, how we navigate this, you know, really unequal world across lines of difference. Um, and so anyway, so we've just built a practice and a rapport and a culture that allows us to support one another, right, but also locate ourselves inside the problem. I love it. Okay, so if you could wave a magic wand today and have one wish for our listeners, what would it be? I actually have a magic wand right here. <laughs> oh, how perfect. Somebody gave this to me when I was going into a difficult conversation. And they said, you know what, I know this is going to be hard for you. Just take the wand. It's only two ninety nine, but it's going to change your state. So I'm bringing magic. Okay, go ahead. You know, someone told me, I feel like maybe Suzanne Sterling told me this. Oh, Suzanne, I love Suzanne. Right? I don't even know how to describe her, which warrior woman, priestess, I mean, all those things, right? Like, um, so like, I love that we're having a love affair for Suzanne Sterling right now. But, you know, I go to her for all things magic and <laughs> witchcraft, because that wasn't how I was brought up. And, and I feel like she said that ma magic, I want to say it was something like intention married with will. Um, right. So I just like, um, and I feel like what you're asking of me is uncomfortable for me because I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do magic. So I'm, I'm kind of bringing that context into this conversation that, that if magic is, you know, intention coupled with will, right, um, to bring forth intention, right, in really radical ways, 
I think what I want for people is a radical remembering. I feel like so much of our suffering is is rooted in what we have forgotten, um, the history that we have forgotten, the connection, right, to the earth and to each other, right, um, our relationship with time, right, and past and future generations, so much forgotten and erased and lost in how we got here and the history of how we got here. And so I guess that is the magic wand. It would be amazing if like one day, like tomorrow morning, let's say, for example, <laughs> we all woke up and remembered, right? Like remembered our indigeneity, remembered our history, remembered the journey of our ancestors and what it took them to get here, remembered our past wrongs and the wounds that we've incurred along the way so that we can do the work of repair. Like I just, that's the magic thing I want for us. I just want us to remember because I feel like if we do, if we remember that we can't survive without each other, we would do very different things. That was such a beautiful response. So may we all remember and then act. Thank you so much. We're, we're so aligned. I've loved this conversation. I'm so excited that you and I got to reconnect around this. In, the, in 2016, 2016, oh my God. I, on the day of the election, I was releasing a book called Indivisible. It was asking those same questions like, how did I grow up thinking I was a number? How did I grow up thinking I was alone? All the all those questions. A lot of that for me was tied up in female embodiment, which turned into Rosebud and a bunch of other things. But, but um, And then I was asking the question of like, how did people become brave 30 or 40 years be before a justice movement became mainstream enough to step out and act when they were like getting tomato pelleted by their own peers. So we looked at eight movements over the course of like the first racial justice, gender justice, child labor, ableism, all the people who were out there just like standing out there beating the drum when no one else was. What did they have in their soul and who did they have around them? And it was to a person, they had five or six key people who were, uh, had different skill sets, who were all making like a little pod of change. And that pod, every time things got really bad, they would remind each other of their why. And that's how they survived. I love that so much. And will you send that to me? Like, is that the in the book you mean? It's in the, another book called Bending the Bow. I'm, order, I'm ordering it. Don't order it. I'll send it to you. No, but I'm really into like supporting people's books right now. Um, I'll send it to you. But I mean, there's really good information. It's just poorly written. You and I have to talk about this conversation the next time. Yeah, it's my last two books are good, but I, I, I'm just saying like I'm being honest about like. I feel you. I have lots of those projects in my past. Yeah. Oof. Anyway, um, but the, the curiosity is what led to the intentional community in Hawaii and a lot of the other projects that are actually living experiments for how to get to the we, that's what I wanted to tell you. And and that there are very repeatable lessons. I think the last chapter or two of the book really capture that. Um, so that I'll send you. Thank you so much for joining Carrie Kelly and me for this conversation. If you'd like to continue the dialogue, you can message me on Instagram at the.rose.woman or find me at rosewoman.com. Uh, Rosebud Woman is the company that I founded that makes intimate wellness products and body care products and lifestyle products to remind you that your entire being is whole, perfect, and complete. 
and I invite you to try some samples over there. And if you care about the program and you like the program, then please take a moment and do me a favor and share it with someone who might benefit. Subscribe, rate it, uh, review it. It's very, very helpful to getting it seen organically. So I hope you live today in the complete knowledge of the utter perfection that you are, that whatever seed became you, knew exactly what it was doing, and that there's nothing to fix. That your wellness is deeply rooted in wonder, awe, reverence, and appreciation for this life, and that it turns into a feeling of wanting that for everyone. As they say in the yoga world, may all beings everywhere be happy and free, and we really mean it. May you and all beings everywhere be happy and be free. Check out sensingwoman.org and I will see you next week.